Welcome to the Tag Your It Podcast. I'm Ray Ray, and here's another bonus episode from the God and Government Conference, a conference on Romans 13, this time session two with Brandon Dodd, elder at Hope Baptist Church, and his exposition of Romans 13. Well, if you're not fired up after singing Jesus Shall Reign and singing about God breaking the teeth of the wicked, after hearing Joshua and what he just preached to us, there's nothing that can fire you up. So, <laughs> At least not if you're the type of person who would attend a God and government conference. If you have your Bibles, go ahead and turn to Romans chapter 13. We're just going to begin by reading God's word. We'll read the first 10 verses of Romans 13. God's word says, Let every person be subject to the governing authorities. For there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed, and those who resist will incur judgment. For rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Would you have no fear of the one who is in authority? Then do what is good, and you will receive his approval. For he is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid, because he does not bear the sword in vain, for he is the servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. Therefore, one must be in subjection, not only to avoid God's wrath, but also for the sake of conscience. For because of this, you also pay taxes, for the authorities are ministers of God, attending to this very thing. Pay to all what is owed to them, taxes to whom taxes are owed, revenue to whom revenue is owed, respect to whom respect is owed, and honor to whom honor is owed. And owe no one anything except to love each other, for the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. Because the commandments, you shall not commit adultery, shall not murder, shall not steal, shall not covet, and any other commandment, are summed up in this word, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbor, therefore love is the fulfilling of the law. That's God's word, let's pray. Lord, we do just uh, beg you to teach us from your word here today, and that you would give us the grace and help that we need to uh, understand and apply it and repent of all the ways that we've not done so. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, yeah, for those of you who know me, I want you to know that I recognize the irony of, of, of you sitting and listening to me talk about the government for 45 minutes. So, uh... We've seen in this past year how much it matters to have a right view of these things. And my aim here today is simply to help us hopefully see more clearly. Right? Joshua gave us this amazing and wonderful foundation, and I just want to lay some principles on it to see more clearly what God says in his word about responsibility to our government, as well as our government's responsibility to us ultimately how each of these is actually and truly a responsibility to King Jesus. So, I have three main goals that I hope to accomplish. First, I'm going to try to set out from Romans 13 what God requires of those of us who sit under civil authority. What's our role toward the government? Secondly, I want to show what the God-given government, God-given role of government actually is. And then finally, I'm going to try to also point toward the proper jurisdiction within which civil government should function. And by jurisdiction, we just mean what are the bounds of government authority, 
right? We know they ought to punish evildoers, right? But does that include bursting into your own home when your six-year-old lies about whether or not they clean their room? And of course, does that include mandating that you stay home, wear a mask, and close your church? In the words of Paul, God forbid. But before we can look at at those three things, I'm going to make one clarification and then give a couple definitions. So I've got, a lot, I've got a lot to cover. I'm going to talk quite quickly, so listen fast. And I'll try to make my notes available to anyone who'd like to have them afterward. So first, why Romans 13, right? Uh, and of course, in one sense, it's so obvious. And in another, it's maybe not. It's, it's, it's not because we believe in sola Romans 13, right? We believe in sola scriptura. This chapter by itself doesn't give us all the answers to all of our questions and authority, but it is a succinct summary and an accurate summary of the Bible's overarching teaching on these issues. So what that means is that today I'm going to try to lay out principles on top of that foundation that Joshua has given us for a biblical view of these things, but I'm not going to work out every sticky wicket that you might think of, and I have to, of course, assume some of my own foundations and principles and presuppositions in order to do that for how I approach the Bible. So if you have questions afterwards, and I hope you do, please find me or else write them down and put them in tags box for the Q&A later. So that's thing number one. Secondly, I need to, as briefly as I can, define two very important words, love and justice. I need to define what love and justice are. In Hosea chapter 12, verse 6, God tells his people, hold fast to love and justice. And in our day, there's so much confusion on the distinction between those two words, right? But we want to know how does the Bible define and distinguish them. So, what is love? It's not a share song. Simply put, love is action that meets the needs of others in such a way as to work for their maximum joy. Love is action that meets the needs of others in such a way as to work toward their maximum joy. Joy. We get that because when Jesus says, love your neighbor as yourself, he reminds us that the way that you seek to meet your own needs and the way that you work for your own joy and the veracity with which you pursue those is the same that you should give to others. Now, of course, many times we miss that mark for ourselves and others. Right? Part of the reason is because we don't recognize that our maximum joy is found in knowing and uh, living in communion with God. But to a lesser degree, you know, a, a drug addict, right, thinks that the, the next fix is what's going to make him most happy, and of course it will make him most miserable. And my seven-year-old thinks that staying up till 11 p.m. will make him most happy. But because I love him, I put him to bed at eight, right? Because that's what love is. It pursues the, and, and seeks to meet the needs of others in a way that works toward their joy. But what about justice? What is justice? Justice in the Bible is very simple and yet so confused. It's simply about what one is due. What is, what is someone owed? Remember Romans 13, 7, what is someone owed? For example, if I steal your car, I owe it to you to give it back, right? And to compensate you for anything lost during that time. But that's a concept, as simple as it might sound, that many people don't understand today because people conflate, they confuse justice and love. The Bible keeps the ideas separately. They're related. They even intersect at times, but the Bible keeps them separate. 
And many today misunderstand that. For example, they might say, well, God says we must love our neighbors, must love our neighbors, right? So we owe it to our neighbors to love them. They actually deserve love from us because we are commanded by God to give it to them. And that's a confusion of justice and love. It's a category error. It confuses what we owe to God and what we owe to our neighbor. For example, I had a friend who believed this for a long time. He said, well, God owns all things, including all of my things. So if someone breaks into my house and takes my car, I should let him because he hasn't actually done anything wrong since I didn't own the car in the first place. God did. Now, well, that's a confusion of love and justice. God commands us to be both loving and just, but justice is about what is deserved, and love is about what is not deserved, but freely given anyway. So God commands us not to steal, so you owe it to your neighbor not to steal from them. The command not to steal tells us that with respect to human-to-human relationships, we actually have property rights. Now at the same time, maybe some of you are ahead of me here, That doesn't mean that love and justice don't intersect. Because even in Romans 13, verses 8 through 10, Paul tells us that love is a fulfilling of the law. Love is a fulfilling of the law. And yet he lists a command like, do not steal. But just because they intersect doesn't mean they're the same thing. At the basis level of love, the most foundational, bare minimum level of love is just to not murder somebody and not take their stuff, right? And you owe that minimum level of love to your neighbor precisely because at that minimum level, merely refraining from taking your neighbor's stuff, that's where justice and love intersect. So we owe it to our neighbor to respect their rights, and yet that is a loving thing to do. Again, people get that wrong. It can be confusing, but people get it wrong. Love and justice are not the same thing. And you might be asking, Brendan, why are you spending all this time on this? Why is it important? Because I'm going to tell you that the government should deal with issues of justice and that they should punish injustice. And But for them to do that and for you to call them and disciple them to do that, you've got to know what justice is. When the government tells you that your neighbor deserves love from you, So stop serving meat at your steak shop because it offends vegetarians. Or when New York told everybody that they needed to love their neighbors and stop serving more than 16 ounces of soda at a time. Or when everyone told us we needed to love our neighbors and and wear masks 24-7, it matters that you know the difference between justice and love. It's an important clarification, and I hope with that in place, then to pursue three goals. What does God require of us toward our government? What is the role of government and what is its jurisdiction? So let's dive into the passage. First two verses of Romans 13. The role of citizens of their government. Let every person be subject to the governing authorities for there is no authority except from God and those that exist have been instituted by God. Whoever therefore resists the governing authorities resists what God has appointed and those who resist will incur judgment. Pastor Joshua has said, and it made it, we made it the theme of our conference, the only thing more abused than government power this past year was Romans 13. And it's in large part due to the fact that most of the time when this chapter's brought up, y'all only mention the first two verses. But you can't separate those two 
from their context, especially because there are some very important questions that come up in these first two verses that you need the rest of the context to answer, just like the rest of the Bible. So I'm going to just take a step-by-step through these verses, even into the following verses, and try to show what those questions are and also what answers Paul gives. First, let's just grab a hold of where we are in Romans real quickly, right? In, In chapter 12, specifically in verses 14 through 21, Paul just finished laying out the responsibilities of Christians toward their neighbors. He says things like, do not take revenge. Do not return evil for evil. And he's talking about the equality of of human-to-human relationships. But then the question comes up, all right, if I can't return evil for evil, if I can't take revenge, what does that mean about relating to the government, right? The government is evil sometimes. They harm our families, persecute our Christians. They put Paul in jail more than once. So do we just take it, or how do we relate to it? And so Paul turns to this issue of subjection and rulership to answer how we relate to our civil leaders. And it's with that then that he begins to say, let every person be subject to the governing authorities. He begins the chapter by saying, be subject to the governing authorities. And immediately the question comes up, if you're thinking, which ones, right? Which governing authorities? If you read only verse 1, you might think he's talking about all government and all laws that they make, right? And as we know, all authority does indeed come from God. Pilate would have had no authority had God not given it to him. And we know that God and his sovereignty is over all things that happen, even those rulers that come to power. So does it mean all government? No. If you keep reading, you find that Paul is going to actually put a number of qualifiers on the types of authorities that he's calling us to submit to, right? Immediately in verse 2, you get the first ones, right? Whoever resists the authorities is resisting God. The first qualification then for the rulers that we're called to obey is that they are not calling us to sin because Paul says, what? Disobeying the rulers I'm talking about is the same thing as disobeying God. And yet, of course, there are times that we must absolutely disobey our rulers, right? When they tell us to sin. The disciples were told in Acts not to preach the gospel anymore. They said, that's fine, but no, we must obey God rather than men. Of course, there's all kinds of examples of that. The most popular would be like Daniel. He says, I'm sorry, I will not pray to you, O king. I'm going to pray to God, the king. And he goes home and he opens his windows up for everybody to see, I pray to God. Similarly, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, all they had to do is for just one really brief moment, bow down and worship a silly inanimate object. They could have just said, well, it's just one time. It's just for a little bit. No, they said, we will not bow. We must obey God rather than men. And yet at the same time, of course, there are some civil rulers that we should obey. That's verse 1, Romans 13. And if we disobey them, Paul tells us then in verse 2, we're disobeying God himself. We're resisting God. So then Paul doesn't leave us to wonder, but actually begins in verse 3 to go into the kinds of governments that we're called to submit to. So in verses 3 through 6, He says, what? Because rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. But you have no fear of the one who's in authority. Do what is good. You'll receive his approval because he's God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid because he does not bear the sword 
in vain, for he is a servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. So be in subjection not only to avoid wrath, but also for the sake of conscience. For because of this you also pay taxes. For the authorities are ministers of God attending to this very thing. So this, for, this passage begins with a hugely important word, right? We could translate the word for, F-O-R, translate it because. So in other words, Paul says in verses 1 and 2, be subject to the governing authorities that I'm going to describe, and know that when you submit to them, you're also submitting to God. Why? Because the rulers that I'm talking about are a certain kind of ruler. The laws that I'm talking about are a certain kind of law. And so in verses 3 through 6, Paul begins describing the types of laws and rulers that he's talking about. He's saying the rulers that you are to be subject to are a terror to evil conduct. And they do not wield the sword in vain. And they do punish evil conduct. And they do protect good conduct. And then in verse 6 it says they attend to, meaning they address and work toward only these very things. Paul is saying in verses 3 through 6, that the types of laws and rulers that we're to be subject to have a bounds to them, have a limit to them. And if there's a ruler or a law that isn't like that, we don't have to obey. We don't have to obey rulers who aren't governing according to God's standard. We don't have to obey rulers who go beyond their God-given role. Right? You can never avenge yourselves, never return evil for evil, can't be violent revolutionaries. But Paul is only calling us to obey laws and leaders who meet these qualifications. So the way we phrase it is like this. When the government is a terror to good conduct, meaning that it tells you to do something that's sin, or else it tells you not to do something that God calls you to do, you must disobey. Must disobey. But when the government is acting within, within, within its God-given role and jurisdiction, you must obey, must obey. But also, when the government tells you to do something that is not sin, but still goes beyond their role and jurisdiction, you're free to disobey or obey. It's not sin, but you're free to disobey or obey. Paul is only telling us to be subject to laws and rulers who meet his qualifications. So that brings up another question in our next point. What are the qualifications, right? What is the role of government that Paul is calling us to submit to? When Paul lays out these qualifications for us to, to be subject to, he's also doing something. He's showing implicitly what kind of government he thinks is best. Now, this is the best kind of government. This is the one you ought to always submit to. So I want to look in more detail at that now, the role and jurisdiction of civil Authority, of course, in verses 3 through 6, again, you see the role of government. You see the qualification. One thing that's important here is that Paul is saying that when governments rule rightly, they act as servants of God, right? We see that three times. They are God's servants, God's ministers. Even if they don't realize it, right? even if they don't realize it, when they rule rightly, they're acting as servants of God. If they are punishing evil and protecting good, they're acting as avengers of God's wrath on evildoers. Now, of course, as we just heard, and as we believe, they should view themselves as God's servants, right? That's what we mean by theocracy, Christocracy. They should view themselves as servants of the king and under his authority, which is why they ought to submit to his standard for how they govern. 
But Paul isn't telling us in this passage to submit to rulers who think a certain way, but who act a certain way. So even if a government isn't explicitly Christian, we should still submit to the laws that they make when they accord with their God-given role and jurisdiction. So what is that? Well, first, their role. Four big principles Paul lays out in this passage. We'll, we'll go through them quickly here. First, they should terrorize and punish evildoers. Pretty simple, verses 3 and 4. They're not a terror to good conduct. They're a terror to evil conduct, and they should punish those who do evil. That's pretty simple. People who want to harm others ought to be afraid of being harmed by our government. People who murder babies ought to be afraid of being harmed by our government. And governments are to concern themselves only with laws that correspond to God-given standards of morality, right? In other words, Paul here, when he says they're to terror to good, I mean terror to, to evil conduct, he's not talking about legal and illegal. He's talking about moral and immoral. He's talking about good and evil. So government should never make laws that punish or scare good conduct. And government should never make laws that punish or scare conduct that we might call amoral. Amoral, right? The act of driving a car. Uh, once you get behind the car and you do it, yeah, you're either doing it to the glory of God or you're not. But the act of driving a car is a, an amoral action. Government should never make laws that punish or scare conduct that is neither good nor evil. For example, the government shouldn't regulate how many chickens you can own. <laughs> but I find myself daily oppressed by that. <laughs> the government shouldn't tell you how much soda you can drink. Now, these are actions that are left up to the individual, to the conscience. Of course, if you're using your chickens for some strange but nefarious purpose, authorities must step in. But if you want to own chickens, you should be allowed to. Right? Civil authorities should not deal in amoral issues, but only in issues of good and evil. They should terrorize and punish only people who do evil. That's number one. Number two, then, and related, the, government author the governing authorities ought not wield the sword in vain. They should not wield the sword in vain. When Paul says that the type of government that you need to submit to does not wield the sword in vain, he's assuming some things, right? He's assuming that part of what it necessarily means to be a civil ruler is to have a sword, right? And second, he's assuming that there is a wasteful, vain use of the sword and a purposeful use of the sword. So what is the sword and what's the purposeful use of it? Well, the sword, very simply, is, I'm going to say it like this, it's the, the power of violent force to bring about a desired action in someone else. That sounds scary because we know our government, but that's what the sword is, right? The sword is the power of violent force to bring about a desired action in someone else. So Paul says that the governments who use the sword correctly carry out God's wrath and vengeance but that means that those who wield it wrongly are doing what? They're bringing about their own desired actions, and they're carrying out their wrath and their vengeance. And God says never to avenge ourselves. Sword, then, a right use of the sword, will use it in a way that lines up with God's standards for good and evil behavior. And thus, when they have to punish evildoers, they'll be acting, even unwittingly, but they'll be acting as God's servants. So to wield the sword then, not in vain, usefully instead, means to use the power of violent force to stop evil behavior. Use the power of violent force to stop evil behavior. 
Now, that's the second qualification, using the sword rightly. Must use the sword rightly. Thirdly, then, governments ought to encourage good behavior. Praise God. In verse 3, it says, Paul, Paul says, doing good will bring about government approval. Verse 4, governments are for our good. Verse 5, we submit to government even for the sake of our consciences. Of course, that means a God-given, God-submitted conscience. So what Paul is saying here is that when a government deals rightly with evil behavior, then it protects good behavior. And it encourages good behavior, and then it also aligns with a, a rightly informed conscience. Right? If your conscience is in line with the law of God written on your heart, that's going to bring about good behavior. That means that the government won't make laws that move outside the realm of what are good and evil, and they also won't make laws that move into the area of the freedom of conscience. The old confessions used to say, God alone is Lord of the conscience. And good civil rulers won't make laws that threaten good behavior or even behavior that's left up to the conscience. Right? They will encourage good behavior, stir up good behavior in us by holding out a sword and saying, here's the line. These things are evil. Don't go here. Stay over here. They encourage good behavior. Finally then, here... Verses 3 through 6, the role of government is to attend only to these things. Verse 6, right? They, they, they give their time to these very things. And it includes taxes. Right? I don't, I'm not going to get into taxes too much here. I pay my taxes for everybody, all the iPhones who are listening to me. Um, <laughs> I pay my taxes. But suffice it to say that Paul is telling us in verse 6, when he says, because of this, you pay taxes because the authorities are ministers of God attending to this very thing, he's saying taxation would only have the ability to be proper if the government was attending to their role. If government is ruling rightly according to God's standard, yeah, let's finance that operation, right? But this also implies that one of the qualifications for the rulers that we ought to submit to is that that's what they devote their time, energy, effort, and finances to. This very thing, ruling according to God's standard. They limit their role to these things. Not universal health care, not mask mandates, no welfare state, not public education, and certainly not shutting down churches. No, the rulers Paul tells us to submit to are those who make laws that are a terror to evil conduct and encourage good conduct and use the sword rightly and align with our God-given consciences. That's the role of government, full stop. They aren't to go beyond this. They aren't. It's not to discount the necessary infrastructure, right, that you would need to accomplish those tasks. For one example, you need judges and juries and detectives in order to be able to confirm that you're actually dealing with guilty people, Right? But the laws and the infrastructure and the financial needs of the government should align with this role and nothing else. And yet, of course, there's one more piece of the puzzle. We're only on point two. One more that we need to deal with. The government ought to punish evildoers, but which ones? Right? They ought to punish evildoers, but which ones? Should they come into your home and punish your child for lying about cleaning their room? Right? Lying's evil. Should they punish those evildoers? No, of course. And Paul, thankfully, even here in this chapter, gives us clues 
as to what the jurisdiction of the government ought to be. Right, that's verses 7 through 10. Read them one more time with me. Paul says, Pay to all what is owed to them, taxes to whom taxes, revenue to whom revenue, revenue, respect to respect, honor to honor. Owe no one anything except to love each other, for the one who loves one another has fulfilled the law. For the commandments, right, don't commit adultery, don't murder, don't steal, don't covet, any other commandment are summed up in this word, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbor, therefore love is a fulfilling of the law. So what is the limit and bounds of the authority of civil government, right? Which evildoers ought they to punish? Paul lays out some clues here to understand this. And, understand this. and what I'm going to do is I'm going to walk briefly through these, try to show you in Paul's mind what he envisions the government doing and the limits to their authority here. I've got seven of them in this passage as a whole, even verse, chapter 12 and 14 even. But we're going to move quickly. So, seven clues for the jurisdiction of the government. First, we got the context of, of Romans 12, especially the last seven verses, 14 through 21. Right before Paul gets to Romans 13, he's dealing specifically with interpersonal relationships. How to relate to your neighbor when they harm you or commit evil against you. So it seems clear that's what he was just talking about, that Paul has in his mind specifically evil actions done from one person to another, instead of what we might say, evil actions committed only against God, like idolatry. And it seems like he's limiting it to evil actions human to human. Second one, uh, we see that Paul, in verse 4 of chapter 13, Paul's telling us that the government is not to punish evil thoughts, but only evil actions. Right? Rulers carry out God's wrath on evil doers. Right? Not evil thinkers, not evil heart motive, evil doers. So that rules out things like thought crime. It rules out punishing somebody for hate, whatever, the, whatever that means. It means we don't punish people for their motives, only for their actions. We don't punish people for their motives, only for their actions. Now, of course, that's not to say, again, that, you know, if you've got a murder case, you wouldn't look for motive. Of course you would. But only that you wouldn't punish someone for their motives. Right? Government ought not punish someone for their motives, only for their actions. That's number two. Third, then, in verses 7 and 8, Paul is talking about justice. That's why it matters that we know what it is. In verses 7 and 8, Paul is talking about what is just, right? Verse 7, Paul says, Give to each person what is owed to them. In other words, give them what they deserve. Do justice to them. And in verses 8 to 10, Paul goes on to show how things like not stealing and not murdering, while they are, yes, the bare minimum of love, they're also what is just. They're also what is owed. So when we think about the movement in Paul's mind from verses 1 to 6 and then to verse 7 and then to verse 8, he's thinking about interpersonal actions and he's thinking about what is owed to people. That's what he's thinking. He's thinking about justice. That's what Paul's thinking about. He's thinking about issues of, of justice, evil actions that are unjust, evil actions that are unjust. Right, that's number three. Paul's talking about justice. Fourth, and then related to that, is the theme of verses 8 to 10 as a whole. In chapter 12, I know I'm moving through these quickly. You can ask me about them later. In chapter 12, Paul's dealing with human-to-human -human relationships. And then he's back to dealing with that again in verses 8 to 10 here in 13, right? 
So in the middle of that, it seems that it would also be about human-to-human relationships and how the government should rightly step in when things go wrong at that interpersonal level. Verses 8 to 10 are summing up a, a whole section from 12 to 13 on how a society, including governments, ought to relate to each other. Well, they're summing up a whole section on how a society ought to, even the government, ought to relate to each other. Uh, so that's, so far, the general sphere of evildoers now. Uh, we're, we're, we're limiting it, we're zooming in here. Number five, there's a connection between verse 10 and verse 4 that's very, very important. In verse 10, Paul says, love does no wrong to a neighbor, right? Well, another translation for the word wrong could be harm, all right? Now, that's, that's how the NIV actually translates it. Take that for what you will with the NIV, but KJV translates it, you know, ill. Love worketh no ill toward a neighbor. But in the Bible, with respect to relating to our neighbors, the word often has to do with causing undue harm to a neighbor. It can even have criminal connotations, that word does, in the Bible. So then you see that, and then you look at verse 4, and Paul says that civil authorities should punish who? Wrong doers. Right now, in the Greek, both, both verses, both words share the same root, and, and that points toward a very specific type of evil that Paul is envisioning that a government should punish. Right? Not all evil, right? here and here. Not even all evil just done from one neighbor to another, like lying to your parents. But only those evils that would be harmful to another person. Only those evils that would be harmful to another person. And I've got two more clues that point me in that direction. Number six, then. Paul uses a very truncated definition of love in verses 8 to 10. I remember my definition at the beginning, and then look at verses 8 to 10. If you read on past chapter 13, you get to 14, and Paul does something really interesting as you read chapter 14. He expands his view of what he says love is from verses 8 to 10. Right In verse 10, love is what? Don't harm your neighbor, right? Don't murder them. Don't steal from them. But in chapter 14, especially verse 15, Paul says, if you want to walk in love, you will not even grieve your brother by what you eat, right? You would give up meat around them because you love them. You would do many things, make many sacrifices in order to preserve and love your brother, And now that's in line with the definition of love I laid out. It takes actions, even makes sacrifices to work for someone else's maximum joy. Of course, in God, but to work for someone else's maximum joy. So now contrast chapter 14 and Paul's definition of love there and his truncated definition of love in verses 8 to 10. In verses 8 to 10, Paul seems to be speaking only of the bare minimum that love is. Why? because he's also talking about justice there. He's talking about, he's talking about love only as it relates to what we don't do to our neighbors instead of what we would do, the links we would go to for them. Right, so in 8 to 10, love is about actions that we don't take. We don't steal. We don't covet. We don't murder. Instead of about actions that we do take, like laying down our lives for others. 
So the question is, why does Paul use this bare minimum definition of love here? That's the last clue, the connection between love and justice in verses 8 to 10. I hinted at it already, but in verse 8, Paul says what? Owe no one anything except to love one another. But we don't think that Paul is confusing justice and love here. Instead, he's saying that when it comes to the negative aspect of the law, do not steal, do not, right, negative, do not commit adultery, these actions are both loving and just. There's an intersection at which these two biblical truths meet. See, all acts of injustice are also unloving. But that doesn't mean that all acts of love are also just. Right? Love might take great action, even great sacrifice, to meet the needs of others. But listen, no one deserves to have another person die for them. Right? Did Jesus give us what was owed? God forbid. No one deserves to have another person die for them. Even though everyone deserves not to have their person or property harmed or stolen. And so with this intersection of love and justice, I think we get a view of the kinds of wrongdoing and evil that Paul is requiring the government to punish. Right, these clues lay out a jurisdictional boundary of civil government. And we would say it like this. That's right, so a civil government's role, right, our civil ruler's role, is to terrorize and punish evildoers. Which ones? Civil government should only punish acts of harm or threat of harm against others or their property. And that's it. That's all the government should do. That's the evil they should punish. When someone harms or credibly threatens harm another person or their property, then they should be punished by the government. In, in modern language, we might use the word coercion, Right? The civil governments, we could say, should appropriately respond to acts or the credible threat thereof of coercion against someone's person or property. There's a legal way of looking at it. It means they shouldn't, right? That means they then should not punish someone who lies about cleaning their room, but they should absolutely punish someone who commits fraud. It means they shouldn't regulate something like how much money someone can make or someone ought to make, but they most certainly should punish people who steal from others. And that's it. That's, that's the role and jurisdiction of the government. And I imagine that I've lost most of you. Maybe not, but I imagine that I have. Because it sounds radical, but it's not. Maybe it sounds naive. It's not. It only sounds radical or naive because so many of us have grown up and been indoctrinated into believing that the government is the one who we should look to to solve all of our problems. Where has that gotten us? Your problem is that you can't imagine a world where the government isn't the one you look to to solve everything. Shame on us. Right? What about individuals? What about the church? The church was supposed to take care of widows and orphans, and we gave them up to the government. Shame on us. 
And just because you cannot conceive of ways that something could be done without the almighty government doesn't mean that your conceptions are reality. All it does is expose the idolatry in our hearts when we do that. We've been taught that the government is God instead of under God. And so we look to them to provide for all of our needs. But that is not the biblical conception of government. It is limited in its role and in its scope of authority. See, one of the problems with everyone's anger over the mask mandates and the shutdowns is that you weren't bothered until it bothered you. There were so many similar types of government overreach, folks, and you were just fine with them because they benefited you. But we're just the same as the world and the left and the liberals and whatever label you give it if we would seek to use the power of the government to get what we want by forcing others to step in line. Then it's just a different cake that we're forcing somebody to bake. Pragmatism cannot be the standard. Right? We have spent far too long being unprincipled hypocrites and we need to repent and ask God for forgiveness and then stand on his word, not pragmatism, for how we relate to the government and how we disciple them to relate to us. Oh, how desperately we need the principles of God's word to guide us. But let me just say, praise God, that even though we have been unprincipled and pragmatic, and even though we have sinned greatly in our misunderstanding of the role of government, while we deserve justice from God for how we have sinned against him, instead he gives us love. For all those who are in Christ, Jesus purchased forgiveness for all of your crimes against neighbor and all of them against God. And because he put forward Christ as our propitiation substitute, God maintains both justice and love toward you. And that frees us then to repent of our unprincipled actions and thoughts and instead stand on God's word for how we relate to and disciple our leaders. And so allow me then just to close with some of the amazing benefits that would come from us having a right understanding of these things. First, what would happen if Christians actually knew what God required of them regarding when they had to submit to the government? Well, one thing's for sure, we wouldn't have closed down our churches just because they told us to. And when the government went beyond its jurisdiction and required that you wear a mask, pastors wouldn't have. But instead, so many pastors and church leaders overstepped their own jurisdiction because we learned it from them, I guess. I don't know. We're supposed to be teaching them. And instead, we just learn from the government. But then church leaders went and overstepped their own jurisdictions and told members what they could or couldn't wear on their faces. That's trickle-down tyranny right there. No, we would, we would know that when they make a law that goes beyond their jurisdiction or else tells us to sin, we are not required to obey. And we certainly wouldn't then require that of anyone else. But also, what would happen if we had rulers who honored God? What would happen if we discipled our leaders? Folks, let's disciple our leaders. 
That was our job. What would happen if we did that and taught them how to honor God and their civil authority? What if we elected ones who would instead of just the lesser of two evils always? If we had civil government who stayed in their lane, if they stayed in their God-given role and jurisdiction, I mean, the free exercise of religion would be protected, not persecuted. We wouldn't be spending so much of our time waging unjust wars. There would be no such thing as victimless, victimless crime. There'd be no such thing as a welfare state. Heck, we'd have fewer problems with racial issues in our nation if the government stayed in its lane. Of course, there'd be no limit on chicken ownership. No church would ever be shut down. No business would be told it's not essential. There'd be no mask mandates. There'd be no stay-at-home orders. Abortion would finally... We'd stop it. We'd punish it. We'd protect our babies. And in all of this, if we had a government who honored God and stayed in its lane... The gospel would flourish and Christ would be honored as king. And so I say to those who aren't involved in civil leadership, it is time for us to know what's required of us and when it is. And then it's time to disciple our leaders and elect godly ones who will obey as they rule. And then to those in government, I say again what Joshua said, repent of your tyranny and submit to God's standard for your role in jurisdiction. And as Psalm 2 says, be wise, be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear. Kiss the Son, lest he be angry, and you perish in the way, for his wrath is quickly kindled. May God bring honor to Christ our King in the civil realm. Let's pray.